started for us. And we are um, chapter 12, starting at verse 10. Let me just remind you of where we've been in the story. We haven't gotten far with Abraham, so it's easy to rehash. Abraham has been called. Well, he's not Abraham yet. He's still Abram. He needs to get his name changed at some point. But he's been called out of the east, way out east of Babylon, in a pla- from a place called Ur. Ur. <laughs> Abraham, Abram is called out of Ur. And remember what it said in Joshua. What was he doing over in Ur? What kind of a man was he? He was a worshiper of idols. The Jewish traditions are that he, was, uh, that he and his father were actually idol makers. Um, that's not in the actual text of the Bible, but that's, the, that's kind of the rabbinic tradition, was that he and his father were, were makers of idols, and the, uh, the um, goddess who they worshipped in Ur of the Chaldees was the goddess of, does anybody remember? The moon. So worshippers of the moon. Until God, the true God, gets a hold of him, right? And the Lord says, leave it all behind, Abram. Forget your father's house. I'm going to give you a new house, right? I'm going to make you a new nation. Forget your kindred. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. Forget your, um, forget your land. I'm going to give you new land. And throughout the story of Abraham, land is going to be hugely important. Hugely, bigly important, okay? The land. And when he gets to the new land, what's the first order of business for Abram when he comes into the land? Altars, right? Worship. Even before he plants his crops and builds his own house, first order of business, the primary thing of the land is to set up altars. Okay, and we, we did this little kind of tangent on the, um, the trees, right? Abram plants or builds his altar right by the, the oak tree, or it's also called a terebinth, okay? And then <laughs> we're going to come now to the next part of the story. So who will read for us Genesis 12? We want verses 10 through 20. Mike, go ahead and just get, it, get the whole story out there for us. Now then, here is your life. 
with his wife and all that he had. Okay, so um, this is where the, the Bible kind of resists what we might call um, fable readings. Are any of you fans of Aesop's fables? You know, the story of the tortoise and the hare? That's Aesop's fables, right? How many of you like the fable stories? What's the mark of a good fable? Talking animals. And the end of the story is always, the moral of the story is, um, slow and steady wins the race, right? That's the fable of the tortoise and the hare. And um, kids really like Aesop's fables because there's talking animals. And who doesn't like talking animals, right, Adam? Right? Right? Um, Parents really like Aesop's fables because... It teaches your kids good, nice moral lessons, okay? Um, And oftentimes when we come to the Bible, we kind of fall into that sort of reading, the Aesop's fable reading, okay? Now, I said this resists the Aesop's fable reading. Why is that? It's not just because there's no talking animals, but why not? Because if you read it as what's the moral of the story, this is not the kind of lesson that parents want to teach their kids, right? Oh, we should be like Abram. Well, except for that time when he lied to Pharaoh. You shouldn't be like Abram, right? Um, Well, we should be like Abraham. Well, except for that time where he almost killed his son, right? Um, The the Bible stories um, certainly do teach us morals. There is a moral application to things, but it's not. We don't want to fall into the sort of um, simplistic route of just saying, especially the Old Testament often goes this way, of saying these are just moral examples for us, right? Um, Kind of the classic uh, moral example reading of a story like David and Goliath is, hey, you're a little guy like David, and if you trust in God, you can beat big guys like Goliath, okay? Now, is there some truth to that? Sure, certainly, Right? But that story is not meant to be, hey, be like David, go around throwing rocks at people who are your enemies and chopping their heads off. Right? Um, I won't talk to Jameson about that. But that's, that's really not the lesson of that story. The Bible, the Bible is Christological. The Bible is, that's just a fancy way of saying it's about Christ. And because it's about Christ, there is, Christ has a way of being. He has, um, he walks a certain way and we are to imitate him, right? Um, One of the kids was wearing one of those WWJD bracelets. Uh, But even that is a little bit dangerous because if you wear a WWJD bracelet, well, what would Jesus do if the temple is corrupt? He'd flip tables over, right? Um, Jesus sometimes does things that we would say, I don't know if that's okay to do, <laughs> right? They're not, it's, the Bible is, here's maybe the best way to put it, it is more than fables. It is more than moral examples, okay? And when we read this story, that certainly pops out. So um, Sunday school teachers often have the, a hard time with stories like this because you're scratching your head thinking, what's the moral as a story, Right? If I'm teaching this to kids, am I supposed to say, be like Abram? Or is this just, you know, you could do it this way. This is a bad example of what not to do. Right? Don't be like Abram. Why? What's the problem with that? What happens to Abram in the story? He lies or he deceives. 
and he gets blessed for it, right? So if the Sunday school teacher says, or the pastor says, well, here's an example of what not to do. Don't be like Abram. The problem is, the story, the actual text of the Bible, commends Abram for what he does. Okay? And so last week we talked about this a little bit. There must be more to the story than just be like Abram or don't be like Abram. All right? There must be something more going on here than just what's the moral, what's the Aesop's fable moral of the story. Yes? Yeah, okay. So this is what, what your, your question is getting at, or your statement there is getting at. Okay, let's think a little bit more, and this is what I, I, I want to encourage you. Um, use your curiosity, use your imagination to try to think with the Bible and not to think kind of against the grain. So if the, if the story is told as Abram tricks Pharaoh and gets blessed for it, Instead of us, this is how we would read it against the grain. We would say, well, that's not right. God shouldn't do that. He should have punished Abram. He should have come down and said, you naughty boy, right? You get three spankings and a timeout for lying, okay? Um, Why isn't God doing things the way I think he should? We want to use our imagination or a faithful imagination to say, what's going on here that this is actually the proper thing to do? This is the right thing to do, okay? And so part of Catherine's statement gets us thinking along those lines. Maybe the customs of Egypt at that time have something to do with what Abram is up to, okay? Now, the other part here, and we'll we'll come to that in a minute, the other part here, and this is what we spent time on last week, is we want to see how the Bible, in a way, tells the same story over and over again. The Bible is like music this way. There are themes that get repeated. Um, So I'm not a classical musician, um, so I don't know all the technical terms for this. But if you listen to somebody like Bach, you will hear, even the untrained ear like mine, will hear, hey, I've heard that before. I recognize that dun-dun-dun-dun. I heard that a minute ago. And if you, if you can expand your uh, attention span beyond three minutes, that's the big challenge with classical music, right? <laughs> if you can expand your attention span, you'll find that really good composers repeat themes, not just from one minute ago, but they weave the theme through the whole piece. And some of those pieces are really long right? Some of those pieces are really long. So this exodus, here's, here's why I say the Bible is like music this way. This exodus theme, dun-dun-dun-dun, gets repeated many times in the Old Testament. And here is, here are the parts of that theme. I can't, I'm not going to sing them to you, but here's the components of that theme of exodus. The first one, and let's see if we can match these up with this story. The first thing that often happens that should clue us in that there's going to be an exodus is some kind of threat or sin or curse drives God's people from their home. Do we see that in Genesis 12? What's the threat? 
the famine. Okay, so God says, I'm going to take you to this good land, Abram. It's going to be awesome. Abram gets there. There's a famine. What happened, God? I thought you were going to give me a good land, man. This land is no good. Right? There's a famine. So he's got to leave. All right? Second thing that often happens is that the woman, I call her Eve here to get us thinking back with the Bible, Eve gets assaulted by some form of a serpent who is trying to destroy the woman's offspring. Okay? Now, most of you ladies don't think, and, and if somebody says, you know, I just want to get married and have a bunch of kids, right? That's probably a bad um, pickup line, right? How many children do you want to have? You want to have my babies? Probably not, right, Caleb? You're not teaching Josh. That one doesn't work, right? Um, but apparently in the ancient world it did, okay? The, the idea of having children, and especially for Abram, this is part of God's promise, how, where do we hear the theme of children come in with Abram? What's the original promise God gives him? Look back at the beginning of chapter 12. I will bless you a great nation. Okay, What do we need to, have to become a nation? Children. We need history. We need time. We need multiplication. We need fruitfulness. Okay? Now, what else in the Bible should that remind us of? Where is there a promise connected to children, or to use good biblical language, to the seed of the woman? Seth, Seth okay? And even before Seth, we call this the, um, here's another fancy term, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel promise. Go to Genesis three, fifteen. Genesis 3.15, the first gospel promise is actually part of a curse that God speaks against the serpent. Here's what it says. I, the Lord, will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring, or seed is the Hebrew word, and her seed. He shall bruise your head you shall bruise his heel, okay? So from the beginning, the promise is that someday there will be a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent. And of course, who is that talking about? Jesus. But Jesus comes from Abraham. And so the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Sarah, the seed of Sarah, is the great, 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 right, grandfather of Jesus. Now, that helps us think along with the Bible. Why is Abram worried that his wife is going to get stolen? Well, because he loves her, right? He loves her. And also because there's this big promise. There's a, it, it, Sarah is a big deal, right? Sarah is a really big deal. If she's going to become a great nation, if Abram is going to become a great nation, he's got to keep his wife somehow, right? You can't have children without a wife. Okay, so part of it, it sounds like he's saying, hey, let's do this. Let's, let's concoct this story. Yeah. 
Okay, but why even do, why even do that? If, if Abram is thinking, they're going to kill me if they find out I'm married to you, why, why even go to the trouble of saying, you're my sister? There's something more with this business of being brother and sister. Okay? And here's the connection that I want you to see, the third part here. There's often some kind of the response. If, <clears throat> if the serpent attacks the woman, what's the man's job? Crush the head. Okay? Now think of, think of the first failure to do that. Who is the first husband who wouldn't protect his wife? Adam. How do we know he wouldn't protect her? It says in Genesis 3, the man, she gave it to her husband who was right there with her, watching it all take place. Okay? So here's what, I, what we're gonna try, I'm going to try to show you, is that Abram is at least trying to protect Sarai. And that is commendable. That is praiseworthy. Okay? Adam was supposed to, um, the man was planted in the garden to guard it and to keep it. Okay? Um, when uh, Eve comes along, Eve says, hey, look at that tree over there. And Adam says, oh, no, dear, we can eat from all the other trees, but God said not that one. Right? He's doing his job. He's, he's like her pastor. Right? He's teaching her. And she says, all right, well, we should probably not even touch it then, right? That's right. <laughs> Eve is not wrong to say that. Sometimes we slip, well, she's adding to God's word. God said, you shouldn't eat of it. But then when the serpent comes, remember the whole dialogue between Satan and the woman? She says, you know, the Lord said we could eat from any tree except that one. And he said not even to touch it. Well, God didn't actually say don't touch. But Eve is a really good student, right? Eve is a great disciple. If I'm not supposed to eat from it, what else shouldn't I do? touch it. <laughs> if I'm going to eat it, I got to touch it, right? She's connecting the dots. And so Adam probably thought, wow, that's a really good point. I never would have thought of that, right? Um, who knows? Maybe he wasn't that impressed. But in any case, he doesn't step in and say, hey, Satan, hey, serpent, quit tempting my wife. He just kind of watches to see what's going to happen. And there's something really strange in that whole thing, right? There's something really strange that Adam is just standing there watching it take place, almost like he wants to see what's going to happen. Now, it doesn't say that, but it, it seems to infer it, right? Adam's almost conducting an experiment. God said not to eat. He said if we ate, we will surely die. But is that really going to happen? Let's see. Hey, Eve, maybe you should eat, right? You, tr you do it first. <laughs> yeah, he's like, this is, this is the way Sam and Jacob are, right? Sam always wants Jacob to go first. Um, hey, here's this big water slide. Uh, Jacob, why don't you try it, right? Let's see what happens, and then, then I'll go down after it. Um, and actually, this, this kind of gets borne out in the New Testament. Um, where is it? Look at this passage from 1 Timothy 2. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Whose sin is greater, Adam's or Eve's? Adam's, right? At least Eve was tricked. 
At least Eve was deceived. Now, that doesn't excuse her, right? You can't plead um, ignorance. Ignorance is not bliss in God's court. You can't say, well, I didn't know that was wrong, right? Um, But Adam ate fully knowing the devil's lying about this, right? That's what the Bible says there. Uh, Here's another spot that talks about this deception. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul writes to the church, and in his mind, what's he, who is he being like? He's being like Adam. The church is like Eve. She's the, this congregation in Corinth is under some kind of satanic attack. The deception of the devil is coming to the church, and St. Paul says, I better do something. I'm going to write him a letter. Hey, honey, don't eat from that tree. Don't fall for these tricks. Don't fall for these lies. To which the woman says, oh, thank you for loving me so much, dear. Thank you for looking out for me, right? That's the way the church should receive God's word. It's our husband protecting us, okay? Unfortunately, what often happens, well, he doesn't really know what he's talking about anyways, right? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it myself. But this business of, uh, go back here, this business of you tell Pharaoh that I'm your brother, Abram is setting up a scenario where he can protect his wife. Now, why do I say that? Am I just making stuff up? Well, in part, I'm trying to think with the Bible. Why is Abram commended here? Why, is, why does he not get reprimanded, but is blessed by what he does here? And so we want to know a little bit about ancient Egyptian uh, and Mid- Mideastern marital practices. Okay, so think about the way we do things. Um, somebody wants to marry your daughter. Okay, um, what does that guy have to do? Has anyone had this scenario recently? You're supposed to, right, talk to the father and not just say, hey, Mr. Schmidt, I'm going to marry your daughter, right? That's, that's not the way it goes, right? What's he supposed to say to you, Jeff? Supposed to ask Sir, I want to marry your daughter. To which your response is, how much are you paying me, right? <laughs> Let's negotiate the dowry, um, right? Now, that's, that's not the way we do things, but that is the way it was done in the ancient world. There's a, uh, there's a dowry. There's a bridal price. And I don't want to go into that whole practice. Um, it sounds barbaric to us, uh, but it actually it protects the woman. Uh, but in any case, we, we won't go into that. You're supposed to, in our world, talk to the father of the woman, okay? Now, is that the way it always has been? We might assume that, but let me show you an example here where the woman's brother is actually the lead negotiator in the marriage, okay? Can you think of Bible stories? We want to stay within the Bible. That's usually a good guide. Are there any good marriage stories in the Bible? There's Solomon, there's the Song of Solomon. We know enough to know that's something about marriage, but that's not really the story. That's just a love poem, right? It's poetry. Do we know of anyone in the Bible who had to negotiate for his bride? Jacob, right? Jacob had to. And before Jacob, even closer to Abraham, Isaac, right? Go in your Bibles to Genesis 26. 
Isaac actually gets rather short shrift. Do you know what short shrift is? That's a good um, English-German combination. Shrift is the German word for writing. The Heilige Schrift, that's the Holy Scriptures. Um, Schrift means, so he gets, there's not much said about Isaac. He almost gets sacrificed, and then he, he gets married. And then, what's the other story we know about Isaac? He, what does Jacob have to do to Isaac? Trick him, right? There's a lot of trickery going on in Genesis. And um, nobody ever gets called to the carpet for it, almost like it's a good thing to play tricks on each other. Um, but Isaac doesn't get much of a story, um, but there is a long section here about marriage. So in Genesis 26, look at verse, um, go down here, go down here to verse, oh, I'm sorry, that's not, that's the wrong chapter. Genesis 24. Genesis 24. Let's start with an easy question. How many verses are in Genesis 24? The answer? Lots. Too many to count. I don't have enough fingers to count that many verses. There's a whole bunch. What does that mean? It must be important. <laughs> if the Bible is willing, and now you've got to think, um, you know, again, paper is easy for us to come by right? Um, paper is, is super cheap. And you can write, if you want to write a story, you can write as long of a story as you want. It might not get published, but you're not going to run out of paper. In the ancient world, paper's not cheap. In fact, I don't know if they even had paper, right? I think they had, how do you make, what do you write on if you don't have paper? Parchment. Parchment. How do you make that if you don't have Phoenix paper mill? It's a long process, Okay, so if you're writing things in the ancient world, guess what you want to do? Be efficient. Conserve space. And so when you come across something in the Bible where there's 62 verses in a chapter, that should at least be, a, you know, you should hear me in the background saying, this must be important because there's a lot of space dedicated to it. The marriage of Isaac and who does he marry, Rachel or Rebecca? I always get those two mixed up. Rachel goes with Jacob. Rebecca goes with Isaac. Rachel, Rebecca. Um, the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca must be important because there's a lot of space given to it. Right? Now, for our purposes here, look down at verse 15. Look down at verse 15. So Abraham sends his servant Abimelech, I think that's his name. No, Eleazar. He sends his servant back to get, his, to get his boy a wife. Go find a wife for my son. Now, before he had finished speaking, he being the servant of Abraham, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden with a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. 
When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. This is a good woman, right? This is the kind of girl you want to marry. You got me, Adam? This is, this is the kind of girl to look for. If she'll draw water for your servant's camels, you propose on the spot, okay? Don't let her pass by. <laughs> so <laughs> if that ever happens, I, I want to be the pastor at that wedding. This, uh, so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel. Pretty sweet. And two bracelets for her arms weighing ten golden shekels. And he said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she goes on to talk. Okay, now skip down to verse 29. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelet on his sister's arms and heard, heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set up before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he, Laban, said, all right, let's talk. So who is negotiating the marriage here? It's not the father. It's brother Laban. And we learn here a couple of things. First of all, you learn what kind of a woman to look for, someone who will draw water for your camels. You also learn what kind of gifts you're supposed to give her. Okay, Adam, are you taking notes? You got to get some gold, some gold bracelets if you want to get a wife, and that's what you got to give her if you're going to get her. All right? Um, the third thing that we notice here is the, the important one, which is that in Abraham's family anyways, we don't know how widespread this is, but you heard this reference, she was the son of, or the daughter of Nahor, who was, if we remember our genealogy, this is Abraham's brother. So in the family of Abraham, the brothers are the ones who negotiate the bridal price. Now, what does that have to do with Abraham telling Sarah, tell him you're my sister? Well, it has this to do with it. Abraham is saying, all right, if he's going to try to get you, if he's going to try to steal you, at least I can be the one to negotiate the thing. And <laughs> what do you suppose Abraham's strategy was going to be with Pharaoh? Say it louder, Caleb. Stall. Stall. Probably both of these things. Put, both, put these two answers together. Catherine said, um, get as much as you can. <laughs> I'll, give you to, I'll give her to you if you pay enough, right? Caleb is thinking as a good husband here, I'm just going to stall. Because after all, why is Abraham down there in Egypt? 
because there's a famine. Where does he want to go back? To Canaan, to the land that the Lord said was going to be this great land. Okay, turns out it's a famine land. But Abraham is setting himself up as he can defend her through some kind of stall tactic. Okay, now, what does Pharaoh do instead of negotiating? He just takes her, okay? He takes her. But at least here, and, and we're not told all, again, the Bible is not going to record every detail for us, but we can kind of think along with the story here. Um, look down, go back to chapter 12, verse 14 and 15. Let's just try to imagine the scenario here. Genesis 12, 14 and 15. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Wow, look at this woman, this foreign princess. By the way, Sarah means princess. So she was some kind of royalty. Um, And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they went back to Pharaoh's court and they said, Pharaoh, you got to see this woman who came down from some place up north of us. Right? You got to see this northern girl. She's not like the girls around here. She's not like these southern bells. She's beautiful. She's even better than your wife, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh hears that as a challenge. All right, challenge accepted. She's mine. Right? Yes. Uh huh. And here are ladies who are 20. Yeah. So, why would you zero in on a 68 year old woman? Well, because. Yeah. The answer, boys, we know the answer here, right? Why, why go for the older girl when you could have the younger girls? <laughs> Good answer. That's not what I was thinking. It's because. Your, your buddies are telling you she's really pretty. So you say, well, they, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show my friends that I can get the pretty girl, you know, the girls that they're praising. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean. That's right. She must have been really something. Yeah. 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 I. She just had, you know, some women um, preserve. God preserves their beauty longer than others. She didn't hit the um, the postmenopausal uh, wall, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. See, these are, these are, this is the reason you have to come to Bible class, right? You have to come to Bible class because these are the things that we need to know. Um, I, I don't know. Um, it's not, we're not told, we don't get a description of her beauty. All we know is she was very beautiful. And you're right. I mean, this is, this is a good example. I want you to think this way. I want you to ask these questions. And sometimes we come to a, an answer and other times we come up and we say, well, I don't, 
I don't know exactly what it was about Sarah, but something about her made Pharaoh's princes praise her and made Pharaoh want her. You know, whether it was just because she was a foreigner um, or she just was more beautiful than all the princesses of Egypt, um, whatever it was, he wanted her. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. Everybody see what he's saying? It's one thing to get a pretty, a pretty girl, but even better than getting a pretty girl is getting a pretty princess. Because <laughs> um, if you can get a princess, then you're connected in, you know, you get that royal marriage thing going. Um, he's going to be, and that might be also part of why he deals well with Abram here. Because he wants, he's thinking about this, um, all right, this guy is the brother of a pretty princess. <laughs> I have three girls, okay? So pretty, pretty princess is on my mind. Um, he's the brother of this pretty princess. He's important. Where he comes from, up north there, he must be a big deal. I'm going to give him all kinds of good stuff, and then when he goes back north, I'll have a trading partner. We'll be on good, we'll be on good terms. This will be advantageous for me, because I get a pretty girl, and also for my kingdom, because now we're tied in with Abram and his whole, his whole thing. And that, you know, that reminds me, I know I've said this before, Abram is not just a solitary individual journeying down to Egypt. Remember, he's got a whole crew going with him. Now, he doesn't have any children, he doesn't have any sons, but he's got a bunch of servants. He, he is a big deal. And even to the king of Egypt, he's the kind of guy who's worth not just killing, but negotiating with, because hopefully there will be some future kickback. Right. Correct. So I've got to protect, I've got to protect the promise. Yes. Yeah, the, the concern for um, his own life, of course we get it. Everyone is self, uh, you want to protect yourself. My, my only point in kind of drawing out this connection with Laban is because I want you to see that Abram, part of the reason that he's rewarded is not just because God doesn't care about lying, right? We know from other places in the Bible you shouldn't lie, okay? But the deceit that Abram carries out is not just, I got to protect myself. It's also here, I need to protect my woman. Just like Adam was supposed to protect Eve, just like Jesus protects the church, Abram here is protecting, or at least trying to anyways, he's protecting Sarai. And, he, and it works, right? It works. That's the other thing to notice here. Yeah, Pharaoh takes her into his house, but he never gets around to actually consummating the marriage. He never actually takes her as his wife. 
And so Abram gets out of Egypt, and when he leaves, skip down, you know, number four, number five, number six, number seven, number eight. Look at number nine. This is part of the Exodus theme. Dun, 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 dun. Part of the theme is when you go out, you don't go out empty-handed. You take, God gives plunder, right? He gives spoils. So Abraham here is spoiling Egypt or despoiling Egypt. Does that work with Jesus? It's always good. Remember, I I started all this by saying the Bible is not like Aesop's fable. It's not just there to give us moral stories. It is Christ-centered or Christ-focused. Does Jesus do this? Does Jesus ever spoil the enemy? I'm going to... Yeah, he crushes the head of the serpent, so he, he defends his people. And now this is really interesting. How does Jesus do it? How does Jesus protect us? He draws, you know, he draws the fire to himself. He says to the serpent, in a, in, in a way, you can't have her, her being his people. You can have me, though. Right? He lays down, think of the, the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Think of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Here come the soldiers. What does Jesus say? Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Let all these go. Right? Jesus protects his bride. Okay? Uh, and that gets carried out even into the, the apostolic age, right? the, the time of the church. Jesus still protects his bride. Okay, um, but go to, look with me real quick. I want you to see this business of spoiling, taking spoils from the devil. I love this passage. Go to Mark, I think it's in Mark 3. Oh yeah, this is, this is where we want to be. Mark 3, verse 22. Now the scribes who came from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Don't you know what Abraham Lincoln says? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. See, Jesus quotes Lincoln. Um, And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. What does that have to do with driving out demons? Who... Yes, yes, yes. Who is the one who is stealing the goods of the strong man? It's Jesus. The strong man in this parable. Let me put it, let me read it again. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds up the strong man. Then 
he can take whatever he wants, right? If somebody's going to come in and steal from me, they have to come in and they have to knock the gun out of my hand, and I'd probably be so nervous that it wouldn't be that hard anyways. They tie me up, and then they can steal all my kettlebells. That's the most valuable thing I have, okay? Um, Jesus is saying, that's what I'm doing. I'm casting out the demons. The Jews are getting mad. How is he doing this? He must be in league with the devil. Jesus is saying, I'm not in league with the devil. I'm binding up the strong man. He's been imprisoning the world. The prince of this world has been lying and trapping people in his deceit. Jesus comes in like a thief to tie up the strong man and to plunder his house. Now, what's the plunder that Jesus takes? It's not gold. It's not silver. It's not horses. It's not camels. It's you, right? It's the church. It's the the people who live in the shadow of darkness. Jesus plunders the prince of this world so that the prince of the world is left with nothing, (laughs) right? Jesus takes all his stuff. He takes all, all of us. So this theme, this Exodus stuff, this isn't just Old Testament things. These themes, right, the Bible is like music this way, these themes get repeated all through the Bible. And when you read about Abram protecting Sarai, now it seems it's a little bit convoluted. This is what makes it hard for Sunday school teachers to teach the six-year-olds what's the moral of the story. The moral of the story is Jesus plunders Satan. That's what Genesis 12 should make us think of. The, the whole Bible is about Christ. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. What's the Bible about, Ray? It's about Christ. It's Christological, okay? And that when we read it, we, we don't want to fall into the, what I'm calling the simplistic thing of what's the moral of the story. We want to say, what does this have to do with, with Christ? Okay. Yeah, true. So, you know, usually in stories where God gets, you know, wins, gets a zinger, it's to prove himself, his righteousness, his mm-hmm. power. So this, they sent Abraham to go. So obviously something happened in Pharaoh's home, bad enough. Yeah. That he said, just take her and leave instead of killing them all. Because he could have killed them all. Yeah, look at, you're right. Yeah, that's a great, this is a great point. Number, look at number six on the board up there. I skipped it in my haste to get to the plunder. Um, but in your Bibles, look at verse 17. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So the plagues, this is, when we think about plagues, we think of, you know, the Nile turning to blood. That's what Moses is all about, right? Moses has the ten plagues, and those plagues are God asserting his power over and against Pharaoh and all the host of Egypt. Well, we find out this has happened before, right? This theme has already been woven into the the music. 
Now, Pharaoh probably didn't want to pass this story on. <laughs> and I think the time span between Abraham and Moses, I believe it's 400 and some odd years, 430. Does that sound right? 430 years. Um, but when Moses comes around and says, the Lord said, let my people go, you know, somewhere back in the history books, 430 years ago, oh, the Lord, is that like, is that like that God who came down with that guy, Abram, who said he was the brother of Sarai, and we had those plagues in the house of Pharaoh? Oh, yeah, maybe I should listen to Moses. Uh, but if you remember, what does Pharaoh actually say to Moses? Who's the Lord? Why should I listen to him? And Moses then says, well, let me introduce you, <laughs> right? Um, and that's what the plagues do, okay? So yes, this is a great point to make. We, we have not only the, the famine, Pharaoh trying to take the woman, Abram deceiving Pharaoh, this, this kind of righteous deception, holy deception. We also have God blesses his people in captivity, brings plagues on the tyrant, there's this miraculous intervention to save the people. See why, see why I'm saying this is like a, what was I saying? It's like a shadow exodus or a proto-exodus. Um, Abram is setting the stage for what's going to come later with Moses. Okay? Um, the last thing to note here, look at verse 18. Pharaoh's response to all of this. Okay? Pharaoh's response to all of this um, comes in under number seven in the sequence that I've put up on the board here. Um, but like music, the, when, we, when we look for this Exodus pattern or this Exodus theme, it's not always a one-to-one -one correspondence. It's not always obvious, the connection. Okay? Um, but, but part of what happens here is Pharaoh blames this isn't my fault. <laughs> All these plagues on my house, this couldn't possibly be because I tried to take a woman uh, as my, how many wives do you suppose Pharaoh had? How many days are there in the year, right? Um, when you're the king of Egypt, you, apparently you take what you want. Um, so Pharaoh doesn't draw the connection, maybe I shouldn't just be marrying a whole bunch of girls. Maybe that's a problem. What does Pharaoh conclude? This is your fault, Abram. <laughs> right? He's the, like I was preaching in the sermon, Pharaoh is the victim here. Right? Pharaoh is the victim. He's been, this, he's been unfairly treated. He, he didn't deserve any of this. This isn't fair. This is your fault, Abram. Um, and so the, the serpent, Pharaoh serving as the, you know, the human instrument here of the serpent, the serpent is going to blame the righteous. This is your fault. All of the problems that are happening now, your fault. Okay? Have we ever heard that before? Where? Adam. Yeah, very good. I wasn't thinking of Adam. But remember what Adam says to God? The Lord comes, you know, Adam, where are you? Oh, I'm hiding. Because <laughs> I thought if, you, if I can't see you, then you can't see me. Right? He's like a little kid. Um, what does Adam say to God? Why did he eat? It, yeah, it's the woman's fault, right? It's her fault, and yeah, why didn't you give me a better woman, 
right? Why didn't you give me a woman who would, you know, not listen to me? Um, (laughs) So Adam does it. Yep. Yeah, Adam, so Adam starts it, blame the woman. Who, where else? If you know, um, if you know a little bit of uh, the history of the church, right? The history of the church is what I'm, what I'm trying to get you to think of here. What did the Roman, why did Rome fall? It wasn't because the Romans became decadent, was it? Was it, Juliet? It wasn't just because the borders were too big. Why did Rome fall? Because this terrible sect of Judaism rose up and stopped worshiping the Roman gods. And if, if only we would have kept sacrificing to, uh, it's not Zeus, Jupiter, and you know, whatever all the other goddesses are, then Rome, the glory of Rome, could have continued. But as it is, these Christians rose up, and the reason Rome fell is because of the Christians. What's the greatest threat to our country right now? No, it's not Joe Biden. It's religious extremism. Didn't you know? Hadn't you heard? The biggest threat to our democracy is people who want Christian nationalism. That's the biggest threat. Didn't you know? It's all, it, it's all in the Bible, right? It's all in the Bible. These, this theme keeps happening. And the, um, part of the reason that we want to study Genesis is because I want you to see, hey, what we face is nothing all that new. It's nothing all that remarkable. That doesn't mean it's easy, but we are the descendants of Abram. And just like Abram got slandered and uh, accused of all kinds of you know, falsehood, even though he did nothing wrong, don't, don't be surprised when Christians are blamed for whatever the, whatever the thing is, right? Um, whatever the problem is, it's usually the Christian's fault, you know? Don't be surprised when that comes. And Abram, you know, he doesn't say, well, Pharaoh, no, let me explain the whole thing to you. Abram just says, okay, I'm going back up to Canaan, right? And uh, that's the way it goes. Sometimes the, your witness will not be received. Don't be, don't be shocked. Okay, let's stop there. It's 10.30. Next week, we'll go on. We'll get into this whole business of Abram and Lot. We'll talk more about uh, Abram and his nephew, Lot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for um, the example of our forefathers in the faith and how your um, scriptures reveal to us uh, your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would continue to bless your word here in our congregation, um, that those who teach and those who learn would be preserved in the true faith to everlasting life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.